Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are broadcasting today via remote access so that in light of the COVID-19 health emergency, we can maintain our social distance and still bring you today's show. Please be patient if we experience any technical glitches. We hope that everyone listening is safe and healthy and doing what they can to protect themselves and our communities during this continuing health emergency. Wealth Matters is presented to you by Gaslowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at a state dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Robert Port and Craig Frankel, and our topic today is Spotlight on Conservatorships and Guardianships. So let's jump in. Uh, let's, let's meet our guests. So Diane, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Diane Weinberg. I'm the principal at Weinberg Elder Law. The focus of my practice is just that guardianships, conservatorships, what's called fiduciary litigation. Um, my background, I have been a Medicaid and Elder Law planning, a special needs planning attorney uh, for about... 15 years. And before that, I was a railroad litigating attorney of all things. Um, I'm a law school graduate of Emory University, a AVO rated attorney, AVB, um, A rated, uh, was a preeminent rated attorney through Martindale Hubble. Um, I actually have a certification as well in elder abuse. And um, I have a practice in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And Michael, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes, I'm Michael Johnson. I'm vice president and COO of Meta Johnson and Associates. I'm a licensed clinical social worker uh, and an aging life care manager, as well as a nationally certified guardian. Um, I began my career working as a hospice social worker, where um, I became a social work supervisor, directing teams of social workers in the hospice world. Um, and I've been doing care management for about eight years now. Uh, we are a family business. Met is my mom. She is a nurse, and I'm a clinical social worker. And we work to help families understand complex medical issues, confusing government benefits, and the challenges of caring for a loved one with various medical needs. And um, I've been serving as guardian um, in different counties in Georgia for about six years now. Great. Thank you both. Um, I uh... In the little research or the research I did before the show, I tried to come up with some numbers as to how many folks may be subject to guardianships and conservatorships nationwide. And it's, it's hundreds of thousands. I don't know if there's any great statistics on that. And of course, uh, most people have heard of Britney Spears and there's something called the Free Britney Movement. Uh, we can talk about that a little bit if, if we want. But... Um, I thought maybe we'd start today by talking a little bit about a broad overview of guardianships and conservatorships. Each state's laws are a little different. Both Diane and you, Michael, uh, work here in Georgia. Uh, so uh, maybe, Diane, let's start with you. If you can give a really broad overview of, of what a guardianship uh, means and what a conservatorship means. Sure. and and. 
what people also need to be aware of is that these terms are used differently from state to state. So we're talking guardianship and conservatorship in Georgia. Um, in other states, and, and uh, for example, California, a guardianship refers to somebody who's under a, a, a protective proceeding who's under the age of 18 and conservatorship refers to 18 and above. Some states you hear guardianship of the person and the guardianship of the property. So it varies from state to state. So that's really important to keep in mind that we're talking about Georgia law and, um, and uh, not, you, you need to be careful where you are that you're using the right terminology with, with your attorneys and, and with the courts. But guardianship and conservatorships are protective proceedings. And I'm gonna make a quick contrast here with, um, with powers of attorney, which there's a lot of confusion between powers of attorney and guardianship, but I think by understanding both, by understanding one, it helps you understand the other. So for example, a power of attorney gives somebody, it's a contract and it gives somebody the right to do something that you're able to do yourself. So if I have a power of attorney and my husband's my agent under the power of attorney, then he has the right to, um, to do whatever's permitted under the contract. That may be, for example, to take make financial transactions on my bank account, right? So he's my agent. He's got the power of attorney. He can make transactions on my bank account and I can make transactions on my bank account. And if he's using the money in the way that I think is improper, then I can fire him as my agent, right? Because it's a contract. I'm giving him the ability to do something I can do. Um, by contrast, Oh, and also it's, his powers are limited within the term of the contract. So if I say you can only write checks on months that end in a Y in August, September, October, November, he can't write checks on my account, okay? It can be very specific as to the terms of those contract. By contrast, a guardianship and conservatorship, we are removing somebody's fundamental rights. We are going to court and the court is making a determination. And, and again, the standard changes from state to state, but in Georgia, the standard is, does somebody have the capacity to make or communicate, that's important, significant responsible decisions with respect to their health and safety, that's guardianship, or with respect to the management of their financial affairs, that's conservatorship. And if somebody lacks that ability to make significant responsible decisions, it's not making bad decisions. We are all allowed to make bad decisions. But if we take information in, are unable to process that information and come out with an outcome, that's where that guardianship and conservatorship is appropriate. And they're often referred to as protective proceedings because that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to protect the person. So does that answer your question? I think it's a little longer than you wanted, but that's a broad overview of, of what a guardianship and conservatorship is. It's a court removing those fundamental rights because you can't exercise them anymore and giving them to somebody who was supposed to act on your behalf um, in exercising those rights. Michael, let's ask a follow-up question for what Diane said. So talking about removing fundamental rights because you cannot make and communicate a decision either regarding health care or financials. How does one determine that this is really an inability to, 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 to make decisions and, and communicate them versus, as, as, as our parents age, perhaps not making the wisest decisions? Sure. That can be a very hard thing to determine. And the court-appointed evaluators report is one of the big pieces of information, of evidence that's used to determine this. As a licensed clinical social worker um, in the state of Georgia, I'm able to complete these evaluations. And 
I often do um, what I call a biopsychosocial assessment. So bio being the medical, psycho being psychological, social being family systems, also including legal things like Diane said, who do they have as their healthcare power of attorney or any agents other under any kind of power attorney? And how do they take care of their needs? And um, a lot of the cases that um, I get asked to evaluate on uh, include things like dementia, or more rarely uh, mental health issues, maybe traumatic brain injury. And when I'm evaluating for someone on these things, of course, we're looking at memory, we're looking at cognitive functioning. And really one of the biggest things I see is what's called impairment in executive functioning. So that is the inability to plan or do quote, higher order level thinking. Um, the classic test that people know about is to draw a clock and you think well everybody sees a clock that seems relatively straightforward although in 20 years we might have to do something different because everything's digital now but the understanding the relationship of number one the image number two the numbers on the image and then three the fact that the long hand and the short hand are pointing to different numbers all of this it requires executive functioning to be able to put that information together and make sense of it and um that's just one example of what we look at but when the psychological evaluation is completed that's one of the pieces that we take into consideration and also insight Unfortunately, with illnesses such as dementia, one of the cornerstones in dementia, they have a special fancy word for it called anosognosia, where the person with the illness doesn't even acknowledge that they have it. And that's often where the danger part comes in, the inability to know what your needs are, to express them, um, and to manage any kind of needs. Uh, if you think it's totally fine to walk down the street at 3 a.m. to get your dog food, um, then, you know, and no one else can tell you otherwise, uh, that's one of the things that we'll see is that impairment and insight as well. So Diane, um, Michael uh, um, identified some of the things he looks for. Let's, let's talk just a little bit about the procedure. Obviously, a court is involved. So why we made one point that I, I would uh, want to highlight. This what we're, what we we think we, we sound like we're talking about elderly people. This is also going to be people who have been in accidents, who have other disabilities or things along the way. It can be non-elderly people, but yeah, let, let's talk about the procedure. Right. This this uh, could apply to to anyone who who um, and I don't know if the word suffers is the right word, but but who has some of the um uh, impairments uh, if you will that michael just mentioned so dan if you can again sort of briefly give an overview of of the process who's entitled to uh seek a guardianship conservatorship on behalf of someone and and how that plays out um uh touching again upon the use of the court by, of the type of evaluation that that michael uh, just referred to Okay, and again, I'm speaking very specific to Georgia because it is going to vary from state to state, but there are uniform acts that have been, you know, different states have, most of the states have enacted these uniform acts. So it should be similar 
but the, uh, I'll, I'll make a point to some of the significant changes in the process. But in Georgia, it's filed by a petition with the probate court. The probate courts in Georgia are the have the exclusive juris, jurisdiction. They are the ones that are allowed to hear these cases and only the probate courts. So um, two people have to file a petition. It can be two people with personal knowledge. It can be one person with personal knowledge and a doctor, psychologist, or social worker, cl licensed clinical social worker, who has um, done an evaluation. And they file the petition with the court. And there are uh, and then the court does a review of the petition. Has this person said enough to, to make me think that, uh, that the proposed ward, that's what the individual is called, the proposed ward, um, that they lack capacity to make or communicate significant responsible decisions with respect to health and safety or management of their financial affairs. If that part has been pled sufficiently, then our court will order an, an evaluation uh, of that, an independent evaluation of that person. And um, this varies from community to community. Sometimes you have to arrange the evaluator. Sometimes the court has a list of evaluators. Sometimes the evaluator will come to your house. Sometimes the, or the house of the proposed ward. Sometimes you have to go to the evaluation. It really just depends on what jurisdiction you're in. And then that, um, that uh, evaluation will be filed with the court. And assuming again, that evaluation is consistent with the uh, with the initial pleading, then the court will go ahead and order a hearing. Also, before the evaluation, the court should appoint an attorney to represent the proposed ward. Because remember, I'm going to make an analogy here. It's similar to a criminal action in that we are looking at removing somebody's fundamental rights. And so um, the attorney is there to make sure that the individual's due process rights are being protected, that their civil rights are being protected, and that everything is going as it should be going. Um, under, under the statute, that we're not railroading somebody into, in, into losing their fundamental rights. And at the next stage though, we do have a hearing and it's an evidentiary hearing where you have to present as the petitioners have to present evidence that this person needs a guardianship or conservatorship. Um, it, if assuming that that burden is met, then the court will in some cases, in most cases require a, a criminal background check, if you're the conservator of their assets, you have to be bonded so that you don't run off and start a vineyard with, you know, open a vineyard in France with the money of the ward. Um, and then you have reporting requirements. You file reports within 60 days of being appointed. Um, well, receiving what are called letters. I'm getting very technical here, but but you are essentially within 60 days of your appointment, you file uh, uh, reports with the court and you have to file reports annually within 60 days of the anniversary of receiving your ability to serve as guardian and conservator. Do you have to be a, do you have to hire a lawyer to seek a guardianship or a conservatorship? No, no, actually speak, generally speaking, Georgia is very friendly. And again, a lot of it is done by form. Now, also I have served as court appointed attorney. I did that for a number of years. And when I was a court appointed attorney, I did work with, you can't really prevent present legal advice to the other side, but sometimes you might suggest options um, if, you, if you felt like uh, that person maybe needed assistance, that maybe we would suggest they hire an attorney or that they review the literature that is published by the probate court. Um, so generally, no. If there is any kind of family dispute, anything that's kind of funky, family members that don't get along, um, if you're doing this because somebody's stealing from mom, you probably want an attorney um, because sometimes there are complexities 
with those issues that just an attorney's going to help you with those. Never do a guardianship or conservatorship if, uh, or represent yourself in a guardianship or conservatorship matter. If somebody has, if a, if a case has been filed and you're going to challenge or the language is contest that case, don't, don't challenge a case on your own. All right. That really does require an attorney and, and, uh, and that knowledge that the attorney can bring to the table. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Robert Port and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gas Lewis Frankel. We're talking today with Diane Weinberg, founder, Weinberg Elder Law, LLC, and Michael Johnson, Vice President and COO, Meta Johnson and Associates. Our topic today is spotlight on conservatorships and guardianships. Michael, let's let's take a step back. So you're a family member and you see a parent or another family member struggling. How does that family member that's trying to help out evaluate, gosh, do I need a conservatorship? Are there other things I can do? Is it going to hurt the family relationship? What should the the person who's worried about the family member be thinking about? Sure. Well, guardianship and conservatorship is definitely a measure of last resort. And there's a lot you can do before getting to that point. In fact, you want to do all those things to demonstrate that guardianship and conservatorship is necessary. Part of what you can do to help a loved one is bring on some services from Meta Johnson Associates Care Management. There are care managers throughout the state, so um, throughout the United States. Step back and actually tell our audience what that means. What is a care manager? What does a care manager do? Care manager helps oversee and coordinate issues for people living with uh, complex medical issues, disabilities, or aging issues. Uh, So we are professionals that serve as consultants to provide recommendations and help carry out care um, for someone. Um, Again, sometimes it's someone may just have complex medical issues, or it may be to the point where they need guardianship and conservatorship. So we have, um, you know, proxy decision-making things such as healthcare power of attorney, which may help in a case where you're trying to assist in someone making medical decisions. Um, But those documents, you know, the proxy is a co-pilot is not taking over the decision making. And there's also the concept of what's called supported decision making. So again, um, let's say there's a proposed ward. We haven't got to that point yet, but the person that needs help, they have someone at their side that helps inform them, give them options, but that person still has all of the rights to make their decisions. And if, the, if that all fails, then you would need to move on to guardianship and conservatorship. I think that's one of the things that the critics of guardianship and conservatorship um, forget is that usually by the time it gets to guardianship and conservatorship, these have been tried. Uh, one of the cornerstones of guardianship and conservatorship is that uh, the person, the proposed ward, it, it's assumed that they don't want the guardianship and conservatorship, that they feel they can make decisions on their own. And so usually by the time you get there, there's been some kind of event or a series of events often that have demonstrated uh, that their safety is at risk without it in place. Yeah, and can I piggyback on what Michael said? A couple of things. First of all, care managers 
I, I, you would think I, I would get paid by these care managers, the way I promote them, advertise them. There, there are no kickbacks. Occasionally I get a lunch, but usually we're, we're paying for ourselves. So there, there's never that issue. A little defensive, but, um, aren't you? What? Well, I just want to make sure people know that this is a decision that I love care managers. And in Georgia, we are so blessed. I've worked with care managers in other states. We are so blessed to have care managers like Michael. We work with a variety of care managers throughout the state, and they are absolute godsends in, in helping family members keep people out of guardianships, um, maintain independence, um, and even when there's guardianships, and particularly if you have a lot of family infighting, they do a great job of, of taking care of the person that is the subject of the guardianship and keeping them out of those family disputes. Cannot say enough good things about a care manager. And also with respect to guardianship and conservatorship itself, uh, just wanting to emphasize again, this is a process of last resorts. The first thing we don't do is say, oops, mom's losing her memory, time to go to, time to, go to court. It's, it really should be taking a look at what, what options are available. But usually by the time somebody hits my office, um, those options have, have, we, we, those have been tried and they've been done. Um, what and, are some of those options? Um, we, of course, powers of attorney are a great option. Um, although I'm beginning to develop very mixed, mixed feelings about them. First of all, powers of attorney can only be done if that person has capacity. Okay. Um, so, uh, I get the phone calls. Hi, mom went into a coma and I need to get power of attorney. It's too late. If they don't have capacity, what's called capacity to contract. If they can't sign a contract and make sense of it, power of attorney option is pretty much done. Um, trust. You can create a trust for finances. Um, a trust is a, it can be a really great option for managing funds and keep people out of a conservatorship as well. Um, and again, you want an attorney to help you draft a trust. Don't, don't try drafting a trust yourself. Um, healthcare gets a little more tricky um, because we do have advanced directives for healthcare in Georgia, which is a, the healthcare proxy, which allows somebody to act on your behalf. Um, but what's interesting about those is that the standard to execute a, or to sign a power of attorney for healthcare is different. It's much lower than for a financial power of attorney. So you can actually be incapacitated and rip up your advanced directive and it's valid. If you're incapacitated and rip up your durable, your, your financial power of attorney, arguably that's not valid, but I'm not gonna go to court about that. I'm just gonna file a conservatorship. We're not gonna, it's not worth arguing to a judge whether or not they had the capacity to do that. It's just, it, it, it's, it's a waste of time and money. Uh, although in theory it's doable. Um, so, um, but that's not true with the advanced directive for healthcare. Um, so also there are provisions in place outside of the statute that just if I walked into a hospital and didn't have anything, this Georgia law actually dictates who and who in priority can make medical decisions on my behalf. Um, so there, there are alternatives to using that. Um, but again, because you can be incapacitated, medical, the right to, to refuse medical care is a fundamental right. And in fact, um, I don't wanna to get too much on a tangent here, but um, so, so there are options for that, but it's a much tougher, those options are I think a lot more limited in the healthcare world than in the financial world, because mm -hmm. that person doesn't lose their right to make medical decisions or all of their medical decisions simply because of incapacity.
So, so let's underscore a couple things that you said. One is don't wait. You can't wait to the last minute. That's not only where they may not be valid. That's where people fight. So yes. people should be doing these directives or powers of attorney earlier on when they, when they, when they can think about it. The other thing I do want to highlight is something that Michael said. Last minute isn't going to do a, good, a lot of good. And it's going to create conflict. So changing things at the last minute or ripping them up, like you said, maybe in a fit of anger, maybe in a, in a lack of understanding, but, but thinking about these things in advance make a lot of sense. And I do want to make one last point. The, the healthcare directive, so is a power of attorney, but the healthcare directive is a form in Georgia and a lot of other states. And in Georgia, it was actually created by doctors and caregivers and lawyers. So it's trying to be a little bit helpful. But let's ask that question, Michael, are our healthcare directives helpful or are they really not going to help you? I mean, they may give you the authority, but do they give you enough direction to help your, help the, the proposed loved one, not proposed, proposed ward or the loved one actually get the healthcare they deserve? Sure. They're definitely helpful. And it's a good starting point. If you are making decisions um, on behalf of someone else, it gives you a baseline of, of what their wishes may be. Um, I think, so for example, in the um, advanced directive for healthcare, there's a question about resuscitation, which, you know, we're talking about heroic measures. It is that proverbial question that people dread of having to make the decision, do we do resuscitation? Do we do heroic measures? And um, it does in there, uh, the person will indicate their wishes. And please, please complete it fully. <laughs> there have been cases where I'm serving as guardian, and that whole page is just blank. You're supposed to initial as to where your preferences are. And that makes it very difficult when making decisions on someone's behalf, um, especially around what about lesser decisions, not necessarily pull the plug decisions, but decisions sure. on the type of care you want? And, right. and, and do the directors help on that or just they give do. authority to make the decisions? They can be helpful in saying what the wishes are. Um, and as a professional guardian, that's one of the first places that I go to when I'm trying to make decisions on behalf of my ward. If the ward themselves is, uh, is unable to communicate to me what their wishes are, um, and that can be helpful. It doesn't include things which one of the big questions is, uh, can mom stay in the home that she's been living in for the past 30 years? That's not in there at all. Um, you know, and I think we've said before, no one ever says I want to go live in a nursing home, but sometimes that is the best and, and necessary decision for their safety and well-being. So guardians often have to make decisions that the ward in that moment, um, they don't want to take that route. And for our listeners, there's a lot different between nursing homes. I know as, as, as normal sure. people, that's what we think, that there are memory care facilities and assisted living facilities and independent living and group homes that provide alternatives to nursing homes. Nursing homes are really where you have a medical need as well. I just, I just yes. want to highlight that because it's so scary. Absolutely. And a lot of times family members say, well, mom always said she didn't want to be put in a quote nursing home, but mom's thought of a nursing home are 
old school 40 years ago and now with the you know growth of assisted livings like you said in memory cares they honestly there are some five-star resort looking and they have activities like cruise ships and they really are amazing places uh later if we get to talk about our success stories i'm gonna um bring one in regarding that so okay so so diane uh, a, a major topic and and we've all touched on this uh, michael's touched on it um is is decision making decision making by the proposed ward um can you tell our listeners the extent to which the ward's decision making is restricted if a guardianship or conservatorship is granted because um frankly um you know when i started in this area and and understood how much um decision-making was taken away from the ward, it, it, it sort of shocked me. It makes sense, but I'm not sure a lot of folks are completely um, aware of uh, what happens. Again, because this is, a, a, as we've said, a last resort when we're trying to take care of a, of a loved one. Yeah, and, and actually, this is where we start talking about abuses, okay? Get, we're putting my soapbox here, because this is where we start talking about abuses. On some level, it's shocking how much of, of somebody's rights were removed, but on another level, it's absolutely shocking how, how, how much people think somebody's rights are removed, okay? So for example, the right to medical consent is removed. Now, there are specific rights that are removed by statute. Remember, I talked before about the power of attorney and how that power of attorney and the terms of that power of attorney dictated what the agent can do. The same is very true under a guardianship and conservatorship in that the statute dictates what rights are removed, okay? But there's still that, just because certain rights are removed doesn't mean all rights are removed. So let me give you an example. In Georgia, one of the rights we can re remove is a right to medical consent. And that's one, a, that's a frequent one. Um, somebody with, uh, cannot make medical decisions and, you know, I'm not expecting them to understand the complexities of brain surgery. But I always say, if this person broke their leg, and went to the hospital? Are they able to communicate what happened? Are they able to understand a treatment plan? Are they able to follow through with that treatment plan? All right, and that's maybe where we wanna take medical consent, but medical consent does not extend to psychiatric care, okay? Um, so you can't force somebody into a psychiatric institution because if you're their guardian, you can't force people to take medication people still have the right to refuse medication under a guardianship. Now we've gotten pretty crafty about how we give them their medication sometimes. You know, people in an assisted living, it might be they don't wanna take their medication, but at breakfast, everyone gets their little cup and take, take your medication, Mr. Jones, okay. You know, so there, there, we've gotten pretty crafty as to how we give them their medication, but we can't force somebody to, you can still refuse medical treatment under a guardianship or conservatorship. Um, you also have the right, again, to, to sort of determine somebody's residence and domicile. Um, that is also a right that's removed. You know, where residents, people may have a mountain home, a, a home in the beach, and a home in L.A., right, overlooking the valley. So that's your residence. It's wherever you live. Your domicile is where do you vote? Where do you have your driver's license? Where do you live legally for, for all of these other purposes? Where do you pay taxes? Where do you pay? Well, I would say that, but you can pay taxes in multiple states. Right. If you work in more than one state, you'll pay taxes in multiple states. So, um, uh, yes and no. Yes, maybe states. where you're cited for federal tax purposes. 
Yeah, I so, was going to, in fact, uh, in, in fact, the states insist on that you pay taxes in all the various places. Yes, yes, they do. And you will hear from them if you don't. My husband used to be a consultant and traveled all over. Yes, I am aware of what happens if somebody doesn't pay those taxes and, and you owe them. So um, uh, anyway, so that is a, uh, so, so taxes are not always the best. But again, yes, that, that can be a, an indicator of where somebody is domiciled. Um, so uh, you want to, um, so anyway, as a, as a guardian, you can make that determination. But again, let's go back to somebody who maybe has a mental health problem and you're their guardian. Well, can you put them in a psychiatric center? As I said before, no, no, you can't. You maybe can put them in a residential center that offers psychiatric treatment on a voluntary basis. And again, peer pressure can be a wonderful thing. If you put a person and say, you're going to live in this place that offers these voluntary services, they may do a great job. Well, if everyone goes to group this morning, then we're all going on a field trip this afternoon. Okay, I'm going to go on my field trip this afternoon. Um, But again, it's all voluntary and it doesn't keep them from getting thrown out of the program if they're non-compliant. Okay, so so there are limits there too. Um, Financially as well. You, um, there are limits as to how you can use the money. You cannot use the money that belongs to the ward for things that you want. <laughs> it's got to be used for the benefit of the ward. Um, you cannot spend it however you see fit. You actually have reporting requirements to the court, and every year you submit to the court a budget, and you have to tell the court if that budget is changed, um, and you have to get approval from the court uh, to change that budget. So again, there's not this free-for-all spending. You actually have to to act on somebody's behalf, uh, you are what we call their fiduciary. You are responsible to them and, and the, the law dictates what you can and can't use that money for. Um, and, uh, and if you are not spending the money prudently, then you can be removed as, as guardian, as conservator. Um, another issue with guardianship, people think that, hey, if I become guardian, I can um, keep this person from visiting my mom forever. I don't like my brother. He's a horrible person and he will never visit mom or dad again because I'm mom and dad's guardian. Nope, doesn't work that way either. And in fact, under the guardianship statute, it says that you are to allow visitation. Um, They think that you can just do things whether or not mom likes it. Well, yes, that's true to some extent, but the guardianship code does require that you talk to your ward and find out what you want. Um, So I, I think people think that they kind of become on some level, a guardianship and conservatorship removes somebody to, uh, from their current age back to when they're 18, from those, from those rights. But it doesn't take away all those rights. We still have certain rights that are fundamental that the, that the guardianship and conservatorship does not remove or that are pre- specifically preserved by statutes. And I think people need to understand that they are taking on the responsibility, but they are, no, they are not the, the dictator of their ward. They have to they have to protect their ward, but preserve those wards, fundamental rights that are not removed by these protective procedures. And that is where I run into the biggest problem. And increasingly, I'm seeing people um, use this process to try to, to, to institute a divorce between couples that have been married for, for long periods of time. Um, it's, it's very abusive in these, in these practices. Um, are you, the, the, the right to get a divorce or marry is, belongs to the ward unless the court specifically grants that authority? Or does the guardian have the authority to, to do a divorce or, 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 get mar- or, or, or allow the person to get married? There is one part of the code that I'm not clear on because it does appear that the guardian may be able to do a, 
irretrievably broken marriage without going to court under Georgia law. But for everything else, you actually have to get court permission. Now I've seen people do it without getting court permission. And I have seen people do it or trying to get court permission to do it. But again, I think this, this person is thinking, you know, hey, if I file for divorce, then dad won't ever get to see mom again. Yeah, again, it doesn't work that way because they still have the right to visit with whoever they want under the code. Uh, you're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. Your hosts today are Craig Frankel and Robert Fort from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gasoid Frankel. Today, we're talking with Diane Weinberg with Weinberg Elder Law and Michael Johnson with Meta Johnson and Associates. And we're talking about spotlight on conservatorships and guardianships. So, oh. so let's talk a minute about some of the issues that you have. Michael, you can start. Where do good intentioned uh, guardians and good intentioned conservators, where, where, where are the problems where they face and it's difficult for them to help their loved one? I, like Diane said, I think the you know well-intentioned family member that says, "Well, I'm going to prevent my cousin or brother from seeing my parent," is is one of the biggest ones. When I'm serving as guardian, I sometimes do get criticism from family members in the mix are saying, "How could you, you know, allow them to be around them after the things that they've said?" Um, barring that it's not actual abuse, um, but that's one of the biggest things. Or when they're using their finances uh, as a way to kind of reward themselves for the hard work that they've done. Uh, those are the, the the big issues that come up. And I, I think too, especially um, in the world of dementia, when um, the person, uh, how can I put it, uh, is kind of susceptible to whatever person they're in front of. So when the son talks to mom, the mom says, oh, well, I'm upset with your sister. When the sister talks to mom, she says, I'm upset with your brother. And they create this story or this conflict where the cornerstone, the foundation of their information is what the loved one living with dementia said. And it's unfortunately not based in reality. And they often, if they're serving as guardian, use that as a means to to separate or to dictate the care. Um, and that can be really problematic. So what, what, what uh, much of what you've said, Michael, is uh, strikes me as, um, you know, an effort to, to gain control, to assert control. Um, and I, I liked very much Diane's comment that you should think of this almost as though your your loved one the proposed ward uh is is maybe 18 at the pay, place where they can make some decisions but maybe not not all of them um so so diane how do you navigate from the legal perspective how do, how do you navigate um if if you see a a problematic situation going on, let's say a conservatorship guardianship has been granted, and you see some problems, what legal remedies are there? You've mentioned uh, getting the guardianship or conservatorship um, terminated, revoked, uh, maybe get a success or a replacement. Um, what, what other tools might there be in your toolbox if, if you see some abuse? Um, you can actually petition the court to do an investigation. Um, and uh, of a complaint. You've got to be careful. I believe there's a timeline that you have, you can't file within a certain period. 
but after that period, you can file and ask the court to do an investigation and they will, they will, court will take those seriously. I've seen family members that just wrote a letter to the judge. It wasn't even, you know, they weren't represented, they weren't represented. They wrote a handwritten letter to the judge and that was enough to get the judge uh, involved. And they actually did in that case, remove the, the, um, the, uh, the fiduciary in that case and the guardian and conservator. Um, you can, um, demand accountings. You can request accountings uh, or the, the court asks for an accounting of a conservator. It's, it's explain um, what an accounting is. Sure. Just explain. You, you want to explain kind of like it sounds. You want them to account for every uh, for, for the money that's come in and the money that's gone out. How have they spent it and what money came in? Where is it and how did you spend it? You've got to report that to the court anyway. Um, but if you think that there's mismanagement, you can demand an accounting as well. Um, I have a feeling there's something else that you may be thinking of, but for the life of me, I can't think of the process that you, you're alluding to. Well, one of the things, obviously, if, if, if there's a problem, if there's been misconduct, there are separate civil actions that could be filed uh, against, against the uh, conservator guardian to, to recover assets, to recover property, and, and things like that. So there are a number of things in, in, in the toolbox. And, and let me also say that um, I believe I'm correct in understanding that, that there is a criminal statute in Georgia. And again, we're, we're focusing on Georgia here, which gives enhanced penalties uh, if there is certain types of defined abuse with respect to uh, folks over 65. So there are some other remedies out there. Uh, again, we hope... <laughs> We hope no one no one has to resort to that. But um, in the panoply of what what happens in these in these situations, uh, folks need to be aware that they are not without some potential remedies if some sort of abuse is discovered. Yeah, you can seek fiduciary. Yes, you can sue a, a fiduciary litigation. But I think to sue on behalf of the ward, you still have to be if somebody's a conservator and they're mismanaging the funds. That's actually the person. The conservator has the right to sue. No, actually, the ward would have the right to sue the conservator for breach. That was actually permitted under the statutes. Yes, so they could they could file suit against their conservator as well. Um, the question is, of course, there's one of a capacity. Now that we've hired the attorney to sue our conservator, do we understand enough to actually maintain the lawsuit, or does it make sense to get a successor in place and then sue the conservator? So there may be some timing issues with that, as your or issues as to how to set up that case. Um, the criminal statutes have been very interesting. I've been pretty active with that and trying to see people prosecuted. It's, it's very challenging. And this is my very, very frustrating. I was in a meeting a couple of years ago with the head of the GBI and his comment, I think was very accurate and very unfortunate that really elder abuse is where child abuse was 40 years ago. It's still okay to do terrible things to mom. Um, depending on what county you're in, in Georgia, if you steal from mom and mom dies, then they're not going to prosecute because mom's dead. Um, because so as so as long as you steal from mom right before she dies, it's not a it's not a crime. <laughs> it's you know, and that's 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 wrong. Um, trying to get courts to use some of the enhanced penalties, I, I haven't seen as much with that. I really see just trying to get the attention of the authorities to be a challenge. Um, and in places, for example, Fulton County, we're counting dead, we're counting toe tags, we're counting dead bodies. 
So how can I get uh, somebody to pay attention to the fact that this person stole dad's car, you know, and went away with it? This is one of dad's assets. Dad doesn't have a lot. Well, I've got 20 dead people here and dad's car missing. Guess where the resources are going? Not to dad. Um, there's also, so, so some of it is that. Some of it is um, one of my favorite stories. Dad um, smacked mom around. Mom had Alzheimer's and dad was really frustrated and he, he smacked her around. And the police came and looked at the kids and said, do you want me to arrest him? If, that, if they were 40, dad got frustrated and smacked mom around. The domestic abuse laws would say, dad goes to jail. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. No one says, well, kids, should we take dad to jail? But the standard is being applied differently because somebody is older. And that is, been, that is tragic, um, that we are not seeing equal application of the law. So that's been really my biggest frustration. The laws are out there, the teeth are out there, um, but trying, unfortunately, uh, and, and I've worked a lot with, um, I've been in discussions with, with district attorney's offices about this because of my frustration in trying to get cases um, prosecuted on behalf of my clients. Where we, where we really do have people who have committed pretty, some pretty heinous crimes. Um, and, and it's been really challenging trying to get the police involved. Again, another one of my favorites in South Georgia, somebody was taken across out of Georgia, they were taken across state lines into Florida. So we wanted to file a missing persons report and perhaps a kidnapping charge. And the person at the sheriff's office said, well, that's, you don't have the right to report a missing person. I said, what do you mean? They said, the only person that has the right is somebody from the assisted living. So I called the DA's office and I said, really? And he said, who told you that? I said, Joe, why did Joe tell you that? He's the receptionist, he's not even a sheriff. So, you know, you, 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 have, you just meet this constant resistance um, to um, constant resistance. And by the way, also, I don't know if you knew this under Georgia law, you, not everyone can file a missing persons report. There are only a certain number of people who can file it. And a lot of counties will make you go to the place where that person was missing. So if grandma was taken across state lines and you're filing a missing persons report, you may have to show up where grandma lives. And you said, well, I live in Arizona. Well, we're not gonna take the case over the phone. You have to show up at her house and then we'll take the report from there. Maybe that will change with Zoom. Uh because now we're doing so much on Zoom. I, I, I say that with a smile. Unfortunately, we are near the end of our show. And so before we, we can, there's so many questions we could ask. Know, so if our listeners, that's okay. If our listeners want to call Diane or Michael so that they can actually ask these questions, Michael, how do they get in touch with you? Our website is metajohnson.com. That's M-E-T-T-A, johnson.com. Our phone number's on there. You can reach me directly, 678-895-8412. Or uh, email me, michaelj at metajohnson.com. We're also on Facebook and LinkedIn, and feel free to connect there because we do a lot of um, updates and social media posts. Thank you. And, and Diane, how would, how would our listeners reach you if they have a question or two? Diane at Weinberg Elder Law. Um, my number 404-969-5600. Feel free to connect with my assistant, Cheryl, who is amazing and can she track is. down wherever I am. <laughs> I, I will also uh, second that Cheryl is amazing. Uh, as we're wrapping up our show today, I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. 
For more information about Gesselitz Frankel, please go to our website at gesselitzfrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Diane Weinberg, founder, Weinberg Elder Law LLC, and Michael Johnson, Vice President and COO, Meta Johnson and Associates. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. (laughs) 